sort of easy as a steady path. But nonetheless, I think I had invested so much now, I knew that this was my future. I was trying to cross the Amazon basin at its widest point, and I went past uh, Pablo Escobar's camp. He sent two men to kill me. I, I certainly shouldn't have been there. I think I see the, the local people as a way into that location, as a way of a window, perhaps, uh, into a world that we can't ever really understand as outsiders. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with the Emirates Festival of Literature right now and Najahi events. More about them later. Have you ever seen those TV shows where those explorers go in and they settle with the indigenous tribes in the Amazon or Papua New Guinea? These people that literally go and live in a different world and expose themselves to different kinds of people. What about those guys that go to the North Pole, the South Pole, and they put themselves under incredible stress and pressure because they just are searching for more. They're searching for some form of meaning in life. Well, our next guest is one of those guys, a famous explorer, a guy that literally has been out to the Amazon jungle, crossed the widest part of its basin, and also been shot at by Pablo Escobar's security guards as he's been on a canoe in that river. Benedict Allen has had a fascinating life and is here on the show today to share his story with us. Let's cue the music. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Wow. Benedict, thank you very much for coming to join us on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Have you done much of this kind of stuff? How many podcasts? Podcasts? No. You know, I'm, I'm known as someone who's technophobic. Um, and... I, it's not necessarily fair, but, uh, well, to start at the beginning, when, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be an explorer, uh, but I I didn't know how to become an explorer. And I, my, my dad was a test pilot, and he was part of a team that was developing the Vulcan bomber, which in those days, 1960s, was, it was such a charismatic aircraft. It carried the, the nuclear deterrent for the UK. And my dad was testing out the Mark II, and he used to fly his plane over the back garden. And it, it was incredibly powerful as an experience. As a little boy looking up, seeing your dad, and one day I remember him tipping the wings of his plane. I thought, wow, you know, signaling that it's him flying that day. And it stayed with me. But more important than seeing this extraordinary aircraft and my dad's ability with it, was thinking it's possible to do something a little bit like my dad. And I knew I couldn't be a test pilot. As I said, I'm, I'm not technologically good you know and I'm I'm a bouncy person I'm energetic person and so I thought how am I going to be a pioneer in my own way how am I going to see the world and so my dad provided me with this sort of role model in a way uh, I suppose he made me believe it's possible to be some sort of explorer or at least to pursue a dream uh, and that's what I did but I didn't have any money uh, like I clung on to this dream all the way through school, all the way through university, and worked in a warehouse just to get enough money to get myself to the Amazon. I thought, if I get the money for the air flight and get there, and the local people will help me. So my expeditions became like that, just by default. I didn't have any money, so therefore, the uh, best way was to tune into people who saw the place not as a threat, 
but as a home that gave them their food, their medicine, their shelter. And so I lived with indigenous people and learnt their skills and then would set out on my expeditions. So the years went by and it became normal for me to immerse myself in a place with local people and be not taking technology became important to me because technology was one more thing that connected me to my world and it was incredibly important if only for my survival that I actually learned to rely on the local people who uh, I learned to trust and gradually that trust was rewarded when they they trusted me. I notice in the way that you talk about technology how we have a whole world of distractions around us and to be and first of all, I'm I'm putting this on the record right now. I hate your guts. I'm jealous. Okay, you've lived the life that I wanted to live, and I'll never forgive you for that. But apart from that, once I get past that, you do get up. <laughs> it's um, it's it's fantasy that you made a reality, and most people live their lives existing. Most people don't. You know, there's things that they wanted to do with their life that they don't do, and and you really, for me, in it's boyhood dream stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged to talk to somebody that's got all of these stories and these experiences to share, which we'll talk about in a while. But you, you, technology seems to get in the way of a lot of stuff. It stops us from concentrating, I find. And I noticed yeah. that you, I watched a video where you had two desks. Oh, yes. Some years ago, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if, if, if for me, I, that was very simple, yeah? Two desks separated by about a meter. Yeah. But nonetheless yeah. there. As I looked at that, I'm like, why am I not doing that? And I was just talking to somebody the other day about taking my emails off my phone and being distracted by a WhatsApp coming in. And I think that whenever I go and I experience an adventure, whether it's, and I've been to Mount Elbrus, I've been to Tukau, I've been to Kili Everest. Um, there we are. You're not doing too bad. Yeah, 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 then right of you. You shouldn't hate me too much. <laughs> um, um, I noticed that the less chance there is for technology to play a, play a role, the better. Yeah. This, this, this is the Garmin's probably as, as, as technological as I am while I'm out there, but I don't know why. Yeah, it's a, it's a very intriguing thing. Just to explain about the desks, I, I decided I was being distracted just like everyone else. You know, I'm, as I say, I'm low tech, uh, but nonetheless, I, yeah, I'd still have a phone. I got it in my pocket. Then I'd, it's very, very tempting, you know, tweeting and this and that, just news, just keeping up to date. So I decided I'd have one desk where I had none of that and it was just, I'd be surrounded by my books. Uh, I bought a little office with all these relics really from different expeditions, drums, uh, feathers, boomerangs, and heaven knows what, lassoes from different mm. expeditions. Um, that's, they would be around one desk and they would take me into another world, take me away from the West, away from the urban environment. And the other desk would be with my emails. Yeah, big screen, modern, clean desk, much more sort of functional. So I wouldn't go to that desk till certainly in the middle of the morning, mm. but hopefully lunchtime. So I'd have a clean few hours while I was just immersed in the world that I'm trying to reach. And I suppose it's the same with my expeditions, but I think it's it, it's a weird thing. I'm seen as a bit of a relic, you know, from a I'm a classic explorer type, really, someone who goes off, disappears. But it, it strikes me that that's more important than ever. Nearly other, every other explorer does take a GPS or satellite phone at least, there's a value in disconnecting, which I think is, is getting more and more important for all of us to just to switch off and take a view of the world on our own terms. Well, we may be right or we may be wrong, but at least we'd be independent from everyone else's 
views that were swirling around and that we tend to get trapped into. So it, it, seems, it strikes me that disconnecting is, is more important than ever rather than, I mean, my, I'm trying to make myself sound relevant, actually. <laughs> it's, it's because, you know, it, you know, I can be seen as just a throwback because I still, you know, my first expeditions, there were whole valleys that had never been seen by the outside world and now those don't exist. But I think it, more important is this other inner space, really, that our, our view of the world and how important it is to, to release ourselves into a world that we discover rather than it's imposed on us by technology. It's really interesting you say that because I, for here in Dubai, I have this hiking group, okay? And the hiking group has about 90 people in it. It's a WhatsApp group. And every Saturday morning we go hiking and it's, we meet at a certain location and we hike and the first peak is for sunrise. So it's an early start. Mm -hmm. And there's a core group of people out of that 90 that come every single week because they get it. And then you have the other people that hear about it and say, can we be part of the group? We'd love to come hiking. And then it's, oh, I didn't realize you went that time of the day. <laughs> it's a little bit early, isn't it? Or it's a little bit hot out there. But we, we don't go for the reasons that people think we go for. It's almost like we've found we need to disconnect. It's almost become a priority for us once a week to be there, to watch the sunrise, to be in the mountains where it's very peaceful and quiet. You just hear the wind and and just get in get in touch with that type of emotion and feeling yeah and then it kind of allows you then for the rest of the week to enjoy it yeah so it's so interesting a lot of my expeditions are just simply not fun at all and the last one i was in the amazon in june last year and every day i, I almost hated even though i was in an enchanted world as it were you know the wonderful moments I, I was lying in my hammock i was all by myself in the in the rainforest trying to retrace the steps I took as a much younger person uh, when I'd had to escape from some gold miners who attacked me. So I was trying to retrace my steps, try and relive that experience and understand what happened to me as a very young man. And now I had all the survival skills and everything in order to not enjoy the forest, but at least work with it. But it was tough uh, because, of, of course, well, well, the first time when I'd escaped these gold miners, I didn't have any luggage. They'd, they'd stolen everything. <laughs> I'd lost everything. This time I was carrying whether it was 30 kilos or not, but I'm, you know, I'm getting on a bit uh, in age. But it, it was tough. It really, really was tough. But I think the impetus that I have is, is more like the impetus that you have. It, it's about that need. Um, and I didn't enjoy the expedition, but I enjoyed having done it. It filled up a certain need that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people will say to me, oh, I wish I could be an explorer. Um, but the answer is that I was very driven from a young age. I wanted to there's something in me that needed to get out there and feel the world on my own terms. And for that reason, I'd put off having relationships. I'd worked in a warehouse. Even now, I don't have sponsors because it sort of gets in the way of what I'm trying to do. Uh, and so it's not easy. It's not their easy. agenda. Wow, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. I wish I did have so I might change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm open to be sponsored by you. Tell, but... tell me about when you explore, do you... For me, when, I, when I'm out on mountains, what, one, one of the things that I find really enjoyable is being able to share the experience. Yeah. So even though it was really tough on the final couple of days of Elbrus, the weather was really bad and, you know, we had some people that went missing and stuff, that sense of community with the group of us, okay, bonded us, but it, it, made, it, it made it feel like we had somebody to talk to about the experience afterwards that would get it. And 
doing what you do in some of the places that you go, is it hard for people sometimes to get it because they just weren't there and they just didn't feel it? I mean, I'll give you an example. I've been to the Amazon. All right. Um, I've been into Manaus. I've been up, you know, four or five hours up the river um, into a very basic treetop type hotel, uh, fish for piranha, you know, jumped in with the Caymans and all this kind of stuff. And I've been there. I know what it's like. I grew up in Nigeria in West Africa, so I've got the you know, experience of what it's like being in West Africa. But someone once said to me, describe Nigeria to me. And I said, I don't think I've got the words in my vocabulary to describe it well enough to do it justice because it's that different. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Now, obviously, you're a writer, and so you're, you're far better at this kind of stuff. But do you find it? It, it, it is hard. Uh, the I do have companions on my expeditions usually because, as I said, I, I turn to local people, indigenous people. So I'm living often in a village for a month, two months as I'm learning my skills. And then, then I set off perhaps alone. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is the people back home uh, wouldn't understand that ex experience as I understood it. But I do see part of my duty really as, as an explorer is, is, in other words, as someone who sets off into somewhere that's not understood or misunderstood. There's a duty, I think, especially nowadays with the environmental problems we have all around the world, to report back. Um, so it helps me to write a book. It helps me to talk to people like you who do understand <clears throat> or who are sympathetic or open to understanding. And I, but I also see it as part of my job. But I, I definitely know I cannot go on the next expedition until I've written my account, written my book or share that experience to school children um, and perhaps some people get it and some people don't uh, but it helps certainly helps me to move on because there's so much sort of bottled up in my head that is so intimate I suppose or so personal to me so I, I sort of shared my experience in a little way uh, through but what, what 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 form of media do people typically connect best with is it reading is it watching your video content you know the tv stuff that you do or listening well I, I think they're all sorts of different different people children they can't read my books because they're generally adults uh some that are sort of simpler um but they tend to like a little you know i, I used to i, I pioneered the video selfie uh for television uh the bbc one day said can you take this contraption along it's called a camcorder uh, this is obviously not recent times. It's a long time ago. It's, it's called a camcorder. Could you just video yourself? And it turns out to be more complicated than it sounds because in those days, every tape, you know, I had to take up masses of tapes. So my cameras were loaded up, not just with essentials, but tapes and batteries. And, and, and uh, well, I had solar panels on the humps of my camels. Okay. So it worked beautifully, actually, laid them either side of the camel humps. Uh, and so I was able to share, not with a few thousand, but a, a with millions of people um, and in those days it was enough just for someone to record their progress as they went along not knowing if they're going to live or die uh, so I've reached different people in different ways uh, and it sounds like it's it's sort of egotistical that it's all about me but it isn't really it's not meant to be certainly uh, it, it's about sharing that experience that other people don't have the privilege or the ability frankly or or, or well or the desire I mean <laughs> Not, not everyone wants to go through hell uh, repeatedly. Um, so, but I see it as part and parcel of the process. If you call yourself an explorer, you you need to be able to report back, and um, it's essential to my psychology as well, my sense of well-being. Michael Palin had 
some really wonderful TV shows that he made when he traveled around the world to experience different things. It it was never about him. Yes, there was satire involved because, you know, of his own personality, which we all are fond of. But getting people to see the world differently, I think is really interesting. And I know, I know you've been to many places and this, the Papua New Guinea, for example, is, is something I'm fascinated to learn about. But if you take somewhere like Uzbekistan, we have the Silk Road. Most people, and including me, most people in the West well, but most people in America can't can't identify most countries on the map. We know that, but most people most people in Europe are better with geography. However, most don't know where Uzbekistan is. And when you go to Uzbekistan and you experience the country, and you go to Samarkand and you see the history and the little Silk Road and you go to Bukhara and stuff like that, it's a different world. It's fascinating, and for me, a real privilege to be able to have, have the ability to go there. Why do you think people don't explore? Oh, that's, that's <laughs> one of those it could lead up to because you've, as you've described it so beautifully, and you can almost imagine that the Silk Road, the caravans of camels unloading their merchandise through the centuries there. And it's, a, it's an astounding place, uh, region. Um, certain people have a sort of restlessness, and, and certain explorers, as we know, through the centuries have essentially been imperialists. They've, they've, gone out and they've wanted to expand their nation's opportunities, trade routes, all sorts of things. So they've come with their own agenda. Um, I don't know. I, I think I sometimes, I, th I sometimes think I'm not a traveler at all. You know, I, for me, it's about a mission. It's not about an objective. And so it's important. I'm not a sportsman, but uh, nonetheless, I can see the similarity. And maybe this harks back to my dad, the test pilot on a mission to to get his aircraft absolutely right. But for me, I suppose most people wouldn't have that desire to push themselves, push themselves, test themselves again and again. That is also part of the experience to me. It's not just uh, the wonder, the curiosity. That is part of it. But I, and I think all humans are explorers. I, th I think it's, you know, this profession that I am in, explorer, it sounds like it's exclusive it actually shouldn't be because we all have this curiosity but i think that curiosity is sparked in different ways and i have to be very very young when I, I saw my dad and was inspired by him so i think i was i was encouraged onward in a way because i thought it's possible you know i know i sound very posh but we, we just didn't have money and uh, i thought but there, there is a way and so i was given that encouragement that a lot of people wouldn't have had but as i said i also have this drive um so most people wouldn't want to do what I do. And as we've hinted, it, you know, it hasn't been easy. I've been shot at, I've been robbed, left to die. Um, and I've gone through a ceremony in New Guinea. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but, but having, I, I mentioned earlier that I was attacked by gold miners in the Amazon. Um, that was my very first expedition. I didn't know what I was doing out there. I had my canoe, uh, my supplies. I had come to a little shack in the Amazon. And in the night, I heard the two gold miners there sneaking up on me, and they were drunk, and I knew they were, they didn't like me. Um, <laughs> but now I saw they had knives. I see it in the, in the moonlight. It was like some terrible, terrible movie. Um, and I crept away from that shack into the canoe. The canoe capsized, I lost everything. I began to walk out of the forest. And I, I did survive that experience. I had two sorts of malaria. 
uh, stumbled on for something like three weeks and got to outside world. But I think that gave me a further impetus. It didn't make me think I, I never want to travel again. I never want to. I didn't want to be an explorer anymore. It turns out to be tough. Uh, it was. I began to need to understand why I hadn't died, why I'd been spared in a way, and perhaps I had survivor's guilt. Oh. But anyway, I think I was somehow traumatized. My next expedition, I went back to rainforest. I decided to leave the new world alone. <laughs> I wasn't going to go back to the Amazon for a while. Uh, but I thought, um, New Guinea, it's got a lot of indigenous people there. Maybe they can help me understand the forest. And I ended up going through an initiation ceremony. Become a man as strong as a crocodile. That was the phrase the elders used. And it was a secret, sacred ceremony. A big fence was erected. It was called the Crocodile Nest. Because the locals had a role model, essentially, of a crocodile. And I went through this ceremony, uh, and it's something that only a 22-year-old would do, a 23-year-old would do. But um, I threw caution to the wind. I thought, if it's good enough for them, maybe it's good enough for me, and maybe I'll understand the forest better, because who better to teach me than the local people? This is what it takes. So I went through the ceremony, not knowing what I was up against, but uh, it, it soon became clear, because I was lined up with, with the other local boys, indigenous people in the village, the boys, um, and our heads were shaven, given little grass skirts, we were led into this crocodile nest, and then put on our, put on upside down turned canoes and cut repeatedly with bamboo blades. And we lost, I suppose, about a litre of blood, two pints of blood each. We couldn't stand up after this. I mean, just cut repeatedly with crocodile marks, the crocodile insignia of the Nyara people. So even to this day, I have permanent scars up and down my chest and back. Permanent, but you sort of just about see them, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, this is a long, long time ago now, 30 years ago. Um, and I, that was only day one. Um, <laughs> after that, uh, we had to earn our crocodile marks and we had to dance around the spirit house while all the old men thrashed us with sticks. And that went on, that was five times a day and it went on for six weeks. Uh, and then we were judged to be men as strong as crocodiles. Um, so this isn't the sort of thing you'd do on a holiday or on a, on a, on a casual journey. It was something very committed. You can perhaps get a sense of the drive I had, um, or the idealism perhaps, because I was determined to try and do it on, do my journeys on local people's terms. I was quite conscious. Is it, is it more, is it more the people than the location? I think I see the, the local people as a way into that location, as a way of a window, perhaps, uh, into a world that we can't ever really understand as outsiders. Uh, and, of course, this window is sort of closing, and that more and more of these indigenous communities are disappearing, and their environments too. So, it, uh, but anyway, that sort of set me up in a way. <laughs> I knew my strengths, I knew my weaknesses, as did all the other men in that community. And it made me that much more determined to... Um, understand that was that was that kind of like you say that's 30 how old were you 30 years ago oh i don't know if it was 30 years uh, so i was 24 actually when we went through that ceremony and uh that was 1984 so okay are you 52 uh actually no no i'm 60 62 so i've lost 10 years somewhere along the way <laughs> 80, 84 no 14 94 i was 24 so you say 84 yeah 84 yeah sorry i was 14 not 24 yeah so you're 62. Yes, yes. You look good for 62. Really good for 62. Wow. You feel you feel young though. Yeah. 
So when I was 23, I moved overseas from the UK. I went to live in Hong Kong, my first job overseas. And so my 23-year-old self was um, invincible, okay, uh, ambitious, adventurous, uh, excited, um, living and feeling for the moment. And remember, this is before we had mobile phones to distract us. And so that's, that's how life was. So I try and think of myself as the 24-year-old that you were. Mm. You go through an experience like you did in Papua New Guinea. That, for six weeks of going through this process, that's life-altering in terms of how you'll then address the world moving forward. Do you think that was a big catalyst once you came out the other side of it to say, well, if I can do that, that I can do most things. I think it, it must have helped. It must have done. I, I don't think back in that logical way, really, because really? still the impetus seems to seems to be enough impetus to just keep on going. It seemed to be part of a process, and I think I was very blinkered as a young man. I, as, I, as I said, to to hang on to that dream, it's not easy, uh, and I wasn't earning any money. I was living with my mum and dad when I was in the UK. And they're very supportive, but they were getting slightly restless, you know, thinking. When's he going to settle down? And I, at first, my expeditions, I thought I couldn't carry on as a have a career like this. So it's quite easy to look back and think it's sort of easy. There's a steady path, but nonetheless, I think I had invested so much. Now I knew that this was my future. I would never quite settle down to be a chartered accountant or something like that because I'd I'd, I'd thrown so much of my life into. Uh, another world there's sort of no going back in a way uh, I'd never be quite normal as it were <laughs> but you know I'm not someone I don't dwell on these things because I don't think you can afford to but I do think I realized after a time that I had to have a very clear sense of who I was and where I belonged I didn't actually belong with the Nyara you know I was brought up in various places because my dad was moving around as a test pilot around the UK but nonetheless I was sort of southern England born uh, or bred at least and um, I had to have that clear sense of belonging otherwise I felt I wouldn't be able to come back um, I did go back to that community the Nyara community and was raised up through the ranks as it were I sort of became more and more senior but there came a time when everyone was expecting me to marry and settle down in that community and I just thought I've, I've got to choose because I was beginning to feel yeah I didn't belong there really it's not my culture not my world but I also began to feel I didn't belong back in the West. In other words, I had no home. And I thought, this is dangerous. You know, I'd, I was ping-ponging backwards and forwards to New Guinea and the UK, thinking, where do I really belong? I thought, I've got to end this. Um, so from then on, I started always going. I didn't go back to New Guinea for years, for decades, and instead always radiated out from from the UK. And it, it wouldn't have mattered if it had been anywhere else in Europe, really, but I needed to be in Europe in the widest sense, because that's really where I belong. And I think that gave me a sort of steadiness, knowing where I belonged uh, and and who I was. That ceremony, more than anything else, it taught you strengths and weaknesses. And so um, I knew that anyone could just spiral out of control, delude themselves into belonging uh, in the rainforest or, or wherever. Um, but I knew I wouldn't survive very long unless I did have that sense of home, and, uh, and that was far away. When you consider where you've been and what you've done, what haven't you done? It's probably an easier question to ask. Or what would you wish to do that you haven't done yet? It's, yes. 
it may be a function of, of getting older, as you, as you pointed out. <laughs> but I, I tend to, at the moment, want to go back. Um, I don't like that because it feels a bit negative, you know, because it always, as I've said, I had a clear view of Yeah, it always move forward. But nonetheless, there are so many of these communities, that, it was so good to me when I was younger, you know, this 22-year-old who said often the Amazon with nothing, you know, just this belief that you had when you went to Hong Kong, that wonderful sense of your own immortality. It's so precious. I don't have that now. I, I have the sense of mortality and it's, it's the opposite. Uh, so there's fear in it. Yeah, there's fear because I now have three children. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm on license. Every time I go away, my wife says, hey, right, the top's, the clock's ticking. Uh, you've got to get back in a month or so. So I tend to have shorter expeditions. And of course I can make the most better use of my time because I now, I can cope in rainforest, I can cope in the Arctic, I can cope in, in desert, you know. I've had so many of my expeditions. They've always been very immersive, so I've learned these skills. So I can now head into places quickly um, and be safer. But uh, I also have a debt, really, to so many people who helped me along the way. Just people, ordinary people in the Amazon, in New Guinea, in the Namibia. I walked up the length of Namib Desert with my three camels. In the Arctic, I lived with the Chuchis, the reindeer herders. They taught me how to use a dog team. So I have a great debt to lots of people, so I want to go back and see how they are. And that's richer for me um, than any new experience because uh, I already have these bonds, these connections, these friendships. I want to see how my friends are. So a lot of my time now is devoted to just going back and checking up on people who were so generous to me as a total stranger who's blundering in, you know, with these ideals of immersing himself, you know. Um, I remember when I went back to the Amazon, I lived with people called the Matses. The Matses, they didn't have a crocodile role model, they have the Jaguar as a role model. So they're very, very different people. The crocodile is tough and territorial and, and so on, but the Jaguar is stealthy, uses its intelligence, its agility, and the Matses were rather like that. So I went back... Um, to them recently, expecting total devastation. Uh, but it was wonderful. The Matzes, who were then on the brink, were trying to share their world. And I thought, oh, I'm so lucky. These these experiences I'm having, no one else will have. But the Matzes have hung on. And um, it's wonderful going back, seeing that they had chased out the drug smugglers, chased out the loggers, and um, have, have held on to their forest. So these are... Metsy rewarding, um, especially when we, we think of indigenous people as so vulnerable, which often there's a resilience there, I see, and it's been so satisfying. But yeah, the course, you know, you're going to Greenland, I'm so envious. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting my revenge, you said that earlier on me. But, but it, yeah, I've never been to Greenland, and I still have that childish curiosity, if it is a child, uh -huh. or childlike curiosity, perhaps. And so there's always places uh, here in Dubai, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm childlike as I wander around the uh, the city, I'm just amazed at what's, what's taking place here. And of course, I'd, I'd, I'd dream of going off into the desert, just grabbing a camel and going. A couple of things, um, you've got a good relationship with camels, haven't you? Yeah, I'd like to feel so. Unusual, because there's a great fear, a great fear of camels. Very and, misunderstood. Uh, the way they behave, yeah, very misunderstood. So tell me, tell me, the, tell me how you see camels. Oh, I see camels. The great thing about a camel is that it doesn't need a human. And, that, and it's so, you know, horses, mules, dogs, th these domesticated animals have a 
reliance on humans. A horse won't last very long unless it has a, a, a source of, of water and so on. But camels can, can cope in desert. And not more than that, they can see it as their home. So you've got to, if you're alone with camels, it, it's very different if you're in, if there's several humans, but if you're alone with several camels, you are outnumbered by creatures who are totally adapted to that environment. So you've got to come to some sort of relationship with them, gain their respect effectively. You you have to really become the top camel because you don't want to be bossed around by the bossiest, you know, even if they respect you, you've got to be the top camel, but you've got to gain that respect. So, um, yeah, the first time I was with camels was in the Namib Desert. I'd been given special permission by the Namibian government to walk up the length of the Namib, which is was an extraordinary thing because there are diamonds in the in Namibia, so it wasn't usual. So I had this great chance, great privilege, but it relied on going with camels because the government didn't want didn't want to go in with a vehicle. They'd um, be just smuggle diamonds out because we wouldn't be able to X-ray the vehicles and so on. But me, a sort of crazy Brit, uh, walking with three camels out the desert. It's very harmless. So they allowed me to do this journey, full length of the Namib, which runs up the southwest of Africa. And uh, But it meant getting these camels to, to believe in this journey, <laughs> or at least believe in me. They didn't know what was ahead of them. And even at the very end of this thousand-mile walk, they were looking over their shoulder, thinking, mm, I wonder if we should just leave him and, and go back again. But they, they were great. They were my companions. Um, they did the carrying. Uh, I did the navigating. We had this wonderful relationship. And uh, they allowed me to see that desert as more like a home, a, a resource, a place that um, could be, you know, need not necessarily kill me. As long as I had the cams on my side, I was okay. I knew that if they ever left me, um, then that, that would be the end. And in Mongolia, I crossed the Gobi Desert with camels. And one camel... After 14 days, it just had enough. It thought, I just want to go home now. And it just sat down. I thought, this is this is dangerous. No one in the world knows where I am. Uh, but I managed to get the other two camels to follow me. And they, you could see them choosing. Do we follow the camel who looks more like us? Or do we follow this this one, well, this two-legged camel? <laughs> and they chose to follow me. And it was a great sort of compliment, I felt. Um, I mean, they, don't worry about that other camel. He, he wandered home. He arrived back three weeks later, how fatter than when he set off. <laughs> and this is the thing, camels will memorize bushes. Uh, they've got this sort of extraordinary facility to look at, observe resources as they go along and to sort of keep them in the back of their head. So he just wandered home and the, the owners were thrilled when he turned up. Uh, but I carried on with my two camels and we were fine. Wow. It's an unusual relationship that here in the Middle East that, that, that Westerners look at camels differently to how the locals do. Yeah, well, I think that's largely because they, as Westerners generally, were, were tourists or strangers anyway, regarded as strangers by the camels, and strangers are a threat. Yeah. So if any survivalist, any, any person or animal that's thinking about their survival, as you have to in the desert, you've always got to be aware. The more you're encumbered by a stranger who doesn't know what they're doing, the more they're a threat. So loyalty is a big thing for a camel. And if I was loyal to my camels, they would pay that back with mm -hmm. a wonderful loyalty. Camel milk, camel chocolate, many camel products now are, are far more widely seen and accepted. Probably. I've seen that you uh, have experienced camel milk yourself. I, ooh, I can't, you were not must have. I've certainly had camel meat. I remember losing a bit of a tooth. <laughs> so I crunched into this camel meat and it had a bit of grit in it. That was a painful memory in Mongolia. I mean, that simple 
error, you know, not checking that it was dried meat from a camel. A simple error of uh, not checking, see if it had a bit of grit in it, um, can be fatal. It can be fatal. You have, you have a toothache, you know, you lose a tooth. Toothache can be, as, as I'm sure you know, unbearable. So you'll be distracted by your toothache. You don't concentrate. You, you, <clears throat> so you don't harness your camels properly, and then the baggage falls down, and you find yourself with three panicking camels, and, and then you're dead. So got to be so careful. But anyway, yes, happy happy days in the desert. I love camels. I love deserts. So different from rainforests. Rainforests are surrounded by these trees, a horizonless environment where you feel imprisoned by all these species that are the best of their kind. Desert is wonderful because it's, it's like your mind expands to fill that space and every little creature you see isn't a threat as it, or it, is, as it seems after a while in the Amazon or New Guinea or Borneo. But in the desert, every creature seems so special because they're on your side, the yeah. side of life. You know, it's so, even snakes, I'd think, wow, beautiful, it's alive like me. I love the way you describe that, you feel that. Okay, you do motivational talks as well. I do. Do it. You don't need motivating, though, do you? <laughs> no. I'll tell you about your inner jungle. How you can. <laughs> how do you, how do you use your experiences to to create those types of talks? And 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 who would you normally be talking to? I'd I'd normally talk about rainforest because it's a very easy metaphor. It's a highly competitive world here in Dubai, but it's also all around the world. You know, we're we're having to adjust to different circumstances all the time. So I talk about the various disasters I've had. <laughs> No one wants to hear about the days when it goes well. But uh, I talk about, for example, I was trying to cross the Amazon Basin at its widest point, and I went past uh, Pablo Escobar's camp. Mm -hmm. He was hiding down at the lowlands on the border between Peru and Colombia. And two, he sent two men to, to kill me because I was a problem for him. He just thought, he thought I was some CIA person, perhaps. I don't know. But I was certainly shouldn't have been there. Um, and these people chased behind me with a their gun there in their canoe and I was paddling and these people would shoot at me and these bullets going right past my head and really nasty and it was supposed it was all over in a couple of minutes um I got round the river bend and the reason why I survived was simply that these men weren't experts in their environment yes they coped very well in Medellin up in the highlands but they couldn't paddle a canoe and kill someone at the same time and so that's uh that's how I got away with it so I talk about these experiences uh with audiences and yeah it's a story and it's, it can be exciting if I tell it well but uh, in the end it, it, I suppose it does a couple of things it takes people away from their own worries their own world it, this could be a banking corporation HSBC or it could be any any startup company all range of managers and so on any audience really um, and sometimes I talk to schools as well but I use these stories to engage people take them away from their problems their worlds and use the jungle as a, as a metaphor talk about how we all have this we all are in a competitive world sometimes it is confusing out there but there are allies there no one can do it alone uh, but there are ways you can use the forest to, to help yourself there's water there there is food there there is shelter there if you look to it as a as something that we're not fighting. And I talk about that initiation ceremony, how in the end uh, we're all in it together. So we knew in that initiation ceremony that we wouldn't be allowed out of the crocodile nest until we were all judged to be working together. Because in the end, 
is not about the individual. In a place that's difficult, like the swamplands of New Guinea, uh, you've got to work as a team. And so that we can imagine the message there. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're part of a banking corporation or De Beers, I, I don't know. You know, it could be any any organisation. It's all about working together. All about being adaptable to changing circumstances, being able to add, able to see a see a horizon when there appears to be none, having a vision. Do you enjoy doing it? I do because, apart from anything else, I'm in a way very unworldly. You know, I, I, <laughs> although I've seen a lot of the world very intensely, I'm someone who's you know I'm not used. To, I've never had an employer. I've never had a desk. You know, so this is a way of actually communicating with my own people, as it were. Uh, they may not be typical, but they are people of my own sort. And um, yeah, I do, and I, I, I enjoy hearing stuff, being challenged. Actually, mm-hmm. it's all very well to settle into a good story and try and entertain, but often people stand up and say, "Hold on, you said this," and my uncle used to do this. And I, I, it's good to be questioned, you know? challenged, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, tell me about your latest book. Well, my latest book is called Explorer, and. I mentioned that I didn't go back to Papua New Guinea. I decided I had to leave it alone. Uh, I had an extraordinary experience going through that initiation ceremony to become a man, as long as a crocodile, but it was too intense, perhaps, that relationship. And in the end, I didn't belong there. So I avoided Papua New Guinea. Then a, a strange thing happened. I, I, I had stopped. I sort of retired from doing my expeditions because I had the dog team in the Arctic, in the Bering Strait, and... Uh, that's the Russian Far East. I was trying to cross to mm. Alaska. I interviewed the guy that created Deadliest Catch, oh. that TV show where they they uh, collect the uh, fish for the bearing uh, Alaska king crab. That's it. Oh right, I didn't see any of those. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's telling me how 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 uh, difficult an environment that is. Yes, well, especially in winter, yeah. and and the in the winter the ice more or less covers the gap, the fifty mile gap between. Russia and Alaska. It doesn't really do it now, but this is 20 years ago. Uh, I mean, global warming has changed things, but there was it was just a chance. And then this was a particularly bad winter, worst winter living memory. And I thought, wow, this year, there may be a chance of getting with my dog sledge. Uh, my dog team I had 10 dogs. I thought I'd get out of the, to Alaska. Uh, and it would be a wonderful thing, trained up by the Chuchis in a traditional way. But anyway, one night I lost my dogs, got separated in a blizzard from my dogs, my supplies, and I thought I'm, I'm going to retire. I, it is, if I get away with this, if I, if I find my dogs in the morning, I, I'm going to turn around, go home and stop. And that's what I did. I found my dogs uh, and, and and did retreat. And afterwards I thought, oh no, I could have carried on surely. But you know, the common sense or some a sense of preservation said, enough is enough, you're risking too much. I mentioned the people called the IFO. I w- went back to check up on them. These people, I thought, yeah, with them, they were stuck on this mountain. I thought they'd, they'd stand no chance with the gold miners moving in. But somehow they had kept their heads down and the gold miners had gone. Uh, there was a wonderful man called Corsai, and Corsai had taken me over the mountain the first time. It's something his people had never done. They hadn't crossed the mountain, but he, he decided to, to take me to safety. Uh, it was an amazing act the first outsider they'd ever seen taking taking pity on me really to to get me out safely um i found him again after 30 whatever years going back and there he was and now he was an old man you know was the same age as me 
and um, we hugged each other. We didn't know what to say apart from each other's names. That that's the only connection we had because I didn't speak his language. Uh, so I said Corsai, Corsai, and he said Benedict, Benedict, and we hugged each other, hugged each other, and it seemed to be enough, you know, because it, it's what you're saying. We had this bond, this moment in time, this history, um, and above all, our humanity. We were just two two humans. Uh, knowing we could trust each other and that's that feeling that i'm sure you've had on your tricks the bonds you form are like no other bonds not just because you can tell tales together afterwards but because of this this intensity this reliance on each other it's a it's a sort of friendship no, can my, my, my dad had it my dad was born in nigeria so my grandparents are missionaries and my dad in 1945 was born there in a place called worry which is not a very well-known mm. place and he lived there as a boy and he had somebody called Joseph that was, worked with the family. And when I was seven years old, my dad was in his thirties. He went back to live there in Nigeria and work in the oil industry. And he went to find Joe and he went back to the bush, like into the countryside to try and find him. And it took him a number of days, but eventually he got Joe. And once he got Joe, the bond they had then forever. Okay. was that Joe, Joe was always by my dad's side. Joe, Joe was my dad's right hand man. He's the driver, every, everything Joe was. And um, that that I thought was really really special, you know, just like just like you explained there, it just reminded me of my father. I think yes, yeah, various relationships. Yes, and that and that relationship with the the wider world again. If, if the phone, you know, can distract people from these strong bonds, uh, these, these connections you can forge not just with fellow humans but with the the planet at large. We need this more than ever because of. Um, climate change and all the rest that's happening around the world we need to understand the world that we depend on and that is part of the process of if we're all explorers we're connecting mm. uh, to that land well said Benedict it's been lovely talking to you good to talk to you thank thanks. you so much for coming on the show today well thanks for sharing your your journeys with me 